Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. In this episode, General Buller makes a return and some of his slow-moving tactics start paying off. Lord Kitchener complains after Tibet makes his escape with 2,500 burghers and the Canadians prepare to attack Louis Boerta in the eastern Transvaal. This war, which was supposed to be over in a matter of weeks, has now dragged on for 10 months and shows no signs of ending soon. The conflict is a precursor to many in the 20th century, where the civilians are part of the logistic network for the defending National Army. The Boers were receiving food, ammunition and transport from their countrymen and women across the length and breadth of South Africa. Other Boers, however, were cooperating with the British, like Piet de Wet, Christian de Wet's brother. Christian was a hero in the eyes of the Boers determined to fight on and had led his division of 2,500 men across the Vile River into the Transvaal Republic. General Kitchener and Hunter were tracking him down, while Lord Methuen's force was also searching for the fast-moving Boer leader. We need to step back a little and mention what had happened to Christian's brother, Piet, to embitter him so much. This may be seen as a microcosm of the entire war. It actually started just before the war broke out, when Piet, who was an excellent businessman, sold 200 horses to the Transvaal government for £20 apiece. But Paul Kruger only paid him £18, and Piet had been seething ever since, and thought his own side unethical. Piet was the one who asked constantly whether it was productive to keep fighting the British, and in the end he surrendered after a confrontation with Christian, which I described in an earlier podcast. Christian never forgave his brother for his hands up or hands up. Many thousands of other Boers had done so too, as they realised the folly of fighting against an insurmountable foe which represented the most powerful empire of the day. If you look at examples of history, this always happens when a nation or region is overrun by a seemingly powerful force. Unless it's an extremely quick campaign supported by the majority of the civilians dwelling in the region, the invading force will be forced to fight a long and costly war against insurgents. And the British were learning to dislike both South Africa and the insurgency, which featured guerrilla tactics, destruction of infrastructure and constant attempts at damaging British army morale. While Methuen was hunting Tibet downstream of the Vaal at his crossing point at Skuman's Drift, the British were also in large numbers to the immediate south of the crossing and the east. Across the Vaal, more troops were waiting for De Wet. There were now a total of around 26,000 British soldiers who were ostensibly hunting this mercurial Boer commander. De Wet had bivouacked at the Van Furenskloof near the Michalisberg range of mountains on the night of the 10th of August. De Wet swung westwards and crossed the crucial Krugersdorp-Johannesburg railway line. That meant he neatly sidestepped the force of mounted infantry under Smith Dorian, but was closely pursued by Ian Hamilton, who was determined to capture the elusive De Wet. De Wet writes, The enemy approached nearer and nearer to us with overpowering forces. Then they charged, and I saw man after man fall, struck down by our merciless fire. Yet De Wet was unable to hold back this attack and retreated further towards the heavily wooded Machalisberg mountain range. Ian Hamilton had 7,600 men under his command and harried de Wet, but this British colonel was to prove more incompetent than his general, Lord Kitchener. On the 11th of August, Hamilton was ordered by Lord Roberts via telegraph to block Oliphant's neck and thus prevent 
de Wet's escape. Remember, Free State President Steyn was travelling with de Wet, so Hamilton had the opportunity to capture both the leading military figure of this conflict and the main political instigator. Somehow Hamilton's military instinct now deserted him. He knew that both these leaders were within his grasp. But what did he do? First, he telegraphed Roberts to say that he would try and stop the vet and the 2,500 before they reached the escape route of Oliphant's Neck, somewhere along what is known as the Rant. This is a geological feature that is critical to understanding how difficult it was for the British to control movement in this area of South Africa. The Rant or Ridge followed an east-west route and involved more than one large continuous line of high ground. A quick word here about what's known in geological terms as the Witwatersrand Basin. It holds the world's largest known gold reserves and has produced around 50% of all the gold ever mined on Earth. This Rant area features a number of outcrops, which are the ridges that de Wet was following. How symbolic then that de Wet, who understood how to use geographical features in novel ways, was using the same line of high ground to both spot the British and shield himself from these scouts as he moved west. Symbolic, of course, because it was gold that really started this war beneath all the coy imperialist pronouncements of Cecil John Rhodes and his fellow British colonials. While de Wet was rushing towards Oliphant's neck, his pursuer, for some inexplicable reason, slowed down. Hamilton literally took a detour based on pure guesswork, which is fine if you're a genius at guessing right, but Hamilton was not. In the two final days of this hunt for de Wet, the 12th and 13th of August, Hamilton's men managed a measly 50 kilometers, whereas the Boer commander managed 70. It was a nine-day chase that ended on the 13th of August, with de Wet making it through Oliphant's neck and then marching 18 kilometers further. Back at Lord Kitchener's HQ, there was general anger. Kitchener sent a private telegram to Lord Roberts, which read, We ran him hard into a corner and fully relied on your closing the door at Oliphant's neck. How was this missed? Remember, Lord Kitchener, technically, was under the command of Lord Roberts, the field marshal of all British forces in South Africa. But Kitchener never shied away from making his feelings known. Roberts was tight-lipped in his reply. His official dispatches have been outwardly vocal about the failings of General Buller and Warren and Colville, but now his response to Hamilton's blunder was a deafening silence. General Rawlinson, who was with Roberts, was a little more blunt, as he wrote in his diary. We ordered Johnny, he means Hamilton, to go to Oliphant's neck, but he did not go there, and in consequence de Wet has eluded us. This will prolong the war considerably, I fear, and we are all down on our luck. They were depressed. But there was to be good news from General Buller, who was Roberts's whipping boy, as we know. The British commander in Natal province had pushed the Boers out of the north of the region and into the Transvaal. The final push of this British army in Natal had begun on the 7th of August, the day after de Wet had managed to escape across the Vaal River as we heard in last week's podcast. Buller managed to move 12,000 men, comprised of Littleton's infantry and Dundonald's mounted brigade, along with 40 guns, into the Transvaal. Curiously, a real ill feeling had developed between these two armies, one led by Buller and the other by Roberts. Littleton wrote of this in his diary, and one line in particular stands out, and it goes, 
War lets loose a flood of envy, hatred, malice. And he was speaking of his own side. Littleton had also had a change of heart about the techniques used by General Buller. Remember all those slow-moving battles earlier in this war and the terrible toll it took, Spion Corp and Colenso, for example. At that time, Littleton had thought of Buller as a blunderer, which of course at times he was. But now Littleton realised that Buller's slow but sure style of moving across the landscape made sense. It meant, for example, a proper control and protection of the logistics support, whereas Lord Roberts, in his lunge for the Transvaal capital, had actually created a situation where his logistic network was weak and prone to attack. Also, the blunders in the Free State meant that Buller was not in a position to attack quickly. Glance at a map and see how Buller's left or west flank was exposed to the Free State. Had he pushed north, it could have come under attack by the remaining Free State forces, which had proven so difficult to overcome. Littleton was part of the new generation of military leaders trained at Sandhurst, so he had initially regarded Buller as a doddering old man. But now he realised that the seemingly cabudgeonly old man was wise. In the 350-kilometre trail since the relief of Ladysmith, the main force under Buller heading into the Transvaal via Fork's Rist had not lost a wagon or a gun. The other area where Buller was truly different from Roberts at this point was that he did not carry out orders to loot and burn Boer farms. He refused to use the concept of collective punishment. Of course, he took direct action against leaders involved in continuing the war, but he would not arbitrarily set fire to buildings and land merely because the Boers were active in the area. Roberts's revenge tactic of starting to lay waste to all Boer property was backfiring on him, whereas Buller had managed a hearts and minds coup. The Boers in his area stopped fighting once they realised the British were not going to commit random acts of arson. There was one main reason for this. Buller knew that those blowing up his railway line, in his words, were not the work of locals, and when once these farms are burnt, the country round becomes a desert, and the owners inveterate haters of the British. Isn't this the crux of fighting a war of invasion? The central and clear understanding about who to blame based on proper information. I'm afraid the war in Vietnam and Afghanistan, for example, broke this intrinsic and deeply felt reality. Focus resources on exterminating the core members of a guerrilla army using highly trained operatives, rather than a blanket approach using general troops on the ground as a buffer against a non-regular army that neither side respect nor understand. This blanket approach is a political approach that dooms the invading army, while protecting the future of the politicians sending the men into the war, along with providing a windfall for those who fund the war. It's not an honest way to deal with a deadly foe, and what was true in 1900 is still true in 2018. But back to Buller. He never went on record to explain why exactly he refused to adopt the scorched-earth policy on farm burning. If you cast your mind back to the 1879 war against the Zulus, perhaps the answer lies there. Buller had raised a force of light horse infantry from the Boers themselves around the Wackerström area, for example, through which he now moved his large army. Buller knew many of the families personally. Buller also knew what De Wett knew and Lord Roberts seemed not to know. That when you're fighting a guerrilla army, you destroy the units in the field and bypass their towns. 
Lord Roberts had pushed directly towards Pretoria, believing the Boers would give up in a way that the British commanders had fought their wars in Europe. Defeat the capital and the symbolism itself causes the opposing army to buckle and surrender. Yet this was a fallacy and one which Buller began to trumpet about publicly, much to the chagrin of Lord Roberts. Buller wrote, I cannot help thinking that the little man is not well disposed towards me, he confessed to his wife, and will do me an ill turn if he can. However, by this time, mid-August, the way was actually clear for the combined armies of Buller in the south and Roberts in the east or the Transvaal to strike at one of the Boer generals we have not yet covered at great length, Louis Boerter. But his story will slowly take centre stage from this moment. Waiting with Lord Roberts and the other 20,000 troops in the east of the Transvaal were the Canadians. By mid-August, plans were being developed to attack Boerter. However, things had been bubbling away for weeks. Boer raiding parties constantly moved in and out of the British lines, and their size was always difficult to guess. Sometimes just 15 men would cause an entire garrison to cease operations for a day or two, and in other times, a handful of British soldiers protecting a train depot would hold off an attacking unit of 120 Boer commanders or more. It was that sort of war. The Canadians were based at Nuitgedacht station on the main railway line, which had been built to service the mines and Pretoria. The line terminated at the port of Delagoa Bay, modern-day Maputo. Unfortunately for the Canadians, Nuitgedacht was also the most vulnerable post, and during the Canadians' first 21 days there, they had been attacked 11 times. But on the 9th of August, there was a sustained battle after incidents of sniping. A Boer commando of only 30 men had prodded the eastern defences in an attack at dawn. They were driven back by the Canadians, but a small outpost near the northeast of the station was even more vulnerable. A seesaw battle commenced. After two hours, a Boer soldier appeared in the camp under a white flag and he surrendered. The Canadians learned from this Boer that there was a large lager of wagons a short distance away, and two Canadian scouts were sent to find it. They located the lager around eight kilometers from Nuitgedacht, and the two men, Corporal Thomas Callahan and Private Percy Stratton Dury from Maple Creek, survived being spotted and then attacked. These small incidents belie the increasingly important role the scouts played in this war. Think about the wars that have followed when an army invades a territory and how vital, accurate information becomes when everyone is against you. So, towards the end of August 1900, Roberts wanted to move against Louis Boerter and was focused on Belfast, a small town east of Nuitgedacht. Before we end this week, a quick update from our young schoolgirl Frieda Schlossberg. Remember, she's 16 and has kept a diary ever since the start of the Anglo-Boer War. While her father sympathises with the British, they're all behind Boer lines, and the young Frieda has a sharp eye and a relatively neutral view of both forces. So in August, she finds herself at Renostoko and describes how General Delaray's commando passed by. It consisted of 5,000 men, mostly free staters. Days later, on the 10th of August, four Boers arrived at their small house and began reading, as she says, in a loud and aggressive tone, a proclamation. They declared this to be the last proclamation by the Transvaal government and said they were officially appointed to carry it out. And the proclamation consisted of the following terms. Commanders are ordered 
to commandeer all edibles, cattle and horses, as well as all produce and anything that might be useful to the enemy, giving the owners receipts. A simple scrap of paper to people on the verge of starving is, of course, useless. Frida and her family pleaded with the four not to destroy or to take their property, and the four seemed to relent. They took the mules but left the horses and oxen. At least they said they would do that. They then visited a neighbour. As Frida explains, this is what happened next. The mistress of the house obstructed the way into the stable and declared, revolver in hand, that anyone who dared to enter would be shot. The mistress was disarmed, and even though she had recently had her home ransacked and all the goods taken, the four took her last horse, leaving that family destitute. These four then returned to Frida's home, and after arguing with her mother, took their horse too. Over the next few days, this family was looted a number of times, until a certain Captain Volmerans of the Transvaal State Artillery arrived and ended the looting. But it's her comment at this point, in this war, that appears most apt. We feared that we would grow old, bent and grey in this forgotten part of the world. Everywhere there was a horrid stillness, which makes one believe that everything alive has been silenced into a perpetual sleep. At that point, her father arrived, who she had not seen for several months. She writes that, It was wonderful to see him again, but he looked tired and much older. Across South Africa, the war was doing the same to virtually every citizen, tiring them out, making them look much older. So we'll end with that, and next week take up with Louis Butcher and Devet, Buller and Roberts, as things heat up once more. Until then, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and check out the website abwarpodcast.com. You can also direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Have a good week. Goodbye. Bring me back to the old Transvaal, there where my